Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Van Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor at City Journal. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron, how's your love life? Charles, you know, my love life is kind of, it's kind of a mess and, and we're trying to figure it out, but you, you, you know, it's, it's, it's like a haunted house because there are so many ghosts. You're always being ghosted. <laughs> and you know what? And you know what, Charles? It's, and, and, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how, how brave you are, or what you do. This is a, a plague that is baked into the logic of modernity. And there's nothing really we can do. I, 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 I had, I was going to say, I, I, I was, I was, I was going to tell our listeners that Aaron came over for dinner last night and yes. told us some horror stories about his dating life. And as always, when I hear things from my my unmarried friends, I go, "Wow, I made the right call." I'm very glad that I got uh, out. Well, of there that. was this there was this great um, tweet that was like, you know, I feel like uh, Gen X looks at Zoomers dating, married Gen X looks at Zoomers dating and thinks, "Wow, I got the last chopper out of Nam," <laughs> and and I was like, "Yeah, that is that is how it must feel," but um. In any case, uh, yeah, so we're in that, I'm fine. But uh, that actually is what we're going to be talking about today. Not my love life, but the love lives or lack thereof of many Americans. Uh, Charles, why don't why don't you introduce this topic that is near and dear to your to your heart, in part because you get to observe it from afar as a married man and not actually have to deal <laughs> with it. Well, you know, but uh, but uh, marriage and mating and all part of the all part of the game. No, I, what we're talking about this week is sort of the the institution of what some like to call marriage markets or the institutions of mating of relationship, sex, and stable relationship formation. We're interested in sort of a host of different inputs and really the ways in which that institution has changed in the 21st century. So, you know, we want to talk about the rise of dating apps. We want to talk about the phenomenon of the sex drop, the the dramatic decline in sexual activity among young adults in the post-Great Recession era, the decline in marriage, we're interested in porn, we're interested in assertive sort of mating, we're interested in sort of all of these different ways in which the marriage market has become, by some definitions, you know, more unequal and certainly more dramatically competitive than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. Aaron, Aaron, what do you, what do you make of sort of our topic today? Yeah, so so like uh, the French writer Michel Houellebecq, and in some ways, I think like you and our guest, I do tend to think of this stuff as a kind of market. And in part, that's just because it's a useful metaphor, but also it's because I think that sex and dating actually has become more like a market and neoliberal principles have kind of colonized the way that we mate and have sex and pair up in particular through dating apps. Um, and I guess, you know, we'll, we'll explore all this in a minute, but my, my take on this has always been that once a market takes hold of a given domain, you can't really opt out of it. Um, it's all well and good to say that Tinder is a hellscape and you should get off of it. But if that's how everyone is meeting people and the norms have changed to the point that you can't really, you know, date through more old-fashioned conventional ways, you know, you don't really have a point, a, a choice, but to get on these dating apps like Hinge and Tinder. And the problem is that the dating apps like a free market have massive Gini coefficients where a very small number of men and women get basically all of the matches and everyone else just sort of, you know, fights for scraps to, to be a little crude about it. And, you know, it's horrible and there's kind of titanic sexual inequality on these apps. It's very well documented, but you know, there's a reason no one opts out of them. It's because like you can't really opt out when that's what everyone else is doing. And so that's kind of what I want to explore. And then also think about, is there a way out of this crushing market logic a asking for a friend, of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in sort of related topics. Part of what I mentioned today is, yeah, so in, in, in my day job, I think a lot about drug policy and the, the public policy super giant, uh, Mark Kleiman, the late Mark Kleiman used to argue that the goal of drug regulation was to create inefficient markets, that in certain circumstances, inefficient marketplaces are desirable. And I think you can think about many of the quote unquote innovations in dating and marriage markets over the past 
decade as the introductions of efficiency, the reduction of search time, the expansion of available pool of candidates. And it seems to me like those efficiencies have resulted in what you described, this sort of more unequal distribution uh, of success in the market, these sort of less desirable outcomes. So I'm interested particularly in this, you know, the, the specifics of the sex market, but also just sort of this bigger question of, are there contexts in which that kind of inefficiency, that kind of localized inefficiency is good and desirable? And how should we think about that? Um, so these are very, these are very simple. Uh, these are very simple questions. Somebody to help us answer these obviously very simple questions is our guest today. He's Rob Henderson. He's a PhD candidate in psychology at Cambridge. Uh, he's known for his writing on human nature, status, psychology, and of course, sex in outlets like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Quillette. Rob, thank you for joining us on Institutionalized. Hey, Charles. Hey, Aaron. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, Rob, we like to start with provocative questions. So, uh, in your professional scientific opinion, should we ban all dating apps? Yes or no? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I can speak to this from from a sort of a scientific uh, perspective here, you know, about whether we should or should not, but I can I can share some data and people can reach their own conclusions. You mentioned before the the gargantuan sort of inequality that's occurring. Um, I was just thinking of a study as you were as you were speaking, uh, finding, you know, the sort of uh, the swipe rates, the the like rates among men and women and how. So, for example, for women, uh, they, they tend to only swipe on, on average, about 4% of the email profiles they encounter. Uh, so less than one in 20 men, they see, you know, these profiles, less than one in 20 of them, they find suitable to, uh, to like. And for men, it's, uh, it's 60%. It's actually more than 60%. The profiles they encounter, they, they like. And so if you, you just run the numbers on that gradually over time, what you find is that a small number of people accumulate uh, the vast majority of the matches. And I think initially these apps, like so many other sort of technological uh, advances, they were designed to make life easier. I think they were probably uh, intended to be for busy people who maybe don't have time to meet uh, you know, romantic partners through work or through other kinds of social interactions, people on the go. And gradually over time, they've subsumed everything. And now, you know, I was having a conversation with someone recently and I said, um, you know, it's weird that in the past, if you met someone online, uh, that was considered like weird or creepy or risky, like, oh, you're meeting someone from the internet. Oh, that's so weird. And now it's become the reverse where if you meet someone in person, it's considered kind of risky or weird or creepy. And the default is to uh, meet with someone through an app. Uh, and I don't know why, why that change occurred or, or why, um, why people now feel more comfortable sort of meeting someone through a screen. But, but yeah, it does seem like people are, are more unhappy with the state of dating. And, and women in particular are actually more unhappy with, uh, with the state of dating than, than men are today. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think I and 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 you've sort of talked about um, we're talking specifically about sort of online dating, but I do think that's a that that's a surprisingly widespread phenomenon. There was a, a study that sort of made waves five years ago that said something like forty percent of couples met online compared to two percent in nineteen ninety five, um, and sort of other other historical venues, uh, college and work, through family, through friends, all declined to sort of make room for this explosion in online dating. So so much of you know. Marriage making, matchmaking um, is is now filtered through this mechanism, and the the, the phenomenon that you're alluding to, um, and I've seen lots of different versions of this, is that where women are pickier for any of a host of reasons than men, um, it produces what, and, and you can talk more about this. It produces, you know, we sometimes call Pareto distribution or power law distribution, um, where they, they, this is the classic eighty twenty rule: 20 percent of the men get eighty percent of the matches, um, and I think that that has a variety of consequences, which I guess I want to ask you sort of how you see that playing out in men's sex lives and women's sex lives, men's romantic lives, women's romantic lives. Um, I asked earlier, sort of, it, I, I started this conversation talking about inefficiencies, um, but it seems like this is a case where we've made matching incredibly efficient. How do you think it has directly impacted how people pair off? Yeah, well, I think one is that, I mean, we're seeing, for example, the number of young, at least among young men, the number well, actually women too, but but in particular, young men, uh, a rise in sexlessness. So the number of young men under the age of 30 who report not having sex in the past year uh, has tripled since 2008. Uh, so it was 
roughly around 10%. And today it's around 30% of men between the ages of 18 and 30. And for women, there was a slight increase as well, but not nearly uh, as pronounced. So young people in general are having less sex, although the fact that young men are more likely to be sexless indicates that basically, um, you, know, you mentioned that basically a, a smaller number of men are, are having a greater proportion of the matches and greater proportion mm-hmm. of the sexual encounters. And so, you know, there, there are the knock-on effects here. Is inevitably, people are going to be unsatisfied. Some people have said um, that that if you're a, a particularly attractive man, the idea here is that you're you're living in a, some kind of a paradise uh, that you can sort of accumulate all of these matches and go on multiple dates per day and 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 sort of live the the bachelor's dream. I think that even for them, so so I think women in general are unsatisfied because they're they're you know trying to a, attract a long term partner, and the guys that they tend to find attractive uh, usually have a lot of options, and there's you know they may not necessarily want to settle with one person, and so women are chasing sort of these unavailable men. Uh, for men who are sort of average or maybe in the ballpark of average, they have a difficult time because you know they get very few matches and very few dates. And then for the very attractive men who are getting a, a large number of these matches and going on lots of dates, I think for the short term, they seem to be having a good time. But just this is just anecdotal. I know guys like this who who like literally make it a game to see how many girls they can hook up with in a day or how many dates they can go on in a week or what have you. And in the short term, they seem to be having a good time, but even they seem like um, sort of repulsed by their own behavior and find that they have difficulty stopping it almost to me resembles like yeah this is not like a scientific opinion but this is just yeah. to me, it resembles yeah. something like an addiction where like they they really want to do this thing but they actually don't like it very much they're sort of swiping and and dating and so on and going on all all, all these uh these sort of encounters with these women but then they afterwards feel the sense of like emptiness and isolation and loneliness but they can't help it because if you're, you know, a guy in your 20s or early 30s and you have this gold mine in your pocket to have all of these romantic partners, very few guys are going to resist that temptation. So I think even for them, they may be getting some pleasure out of it, but they may also be be suffering from sort of unexpected uh, negative consequences. You know, you said that women tend to be unsatisfied. So, so. Wesley Yang had an interesting tweet the other day where he said that, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that the true fem cell, so the true kind of female equivalent of an incel, hmm. is not a woman who can't get sex, but is a woman who can't get intimacy. I mean, do you think that's right? Or are there actually women who find that it's just hard to get any matches to, like, like, does this happen or are they all just sort of inundated with sort of solicitations from perhaps kind of crappy men? Yeah. I mean, so, so I mentioned before that women today seem to be less satisfied with, with dating than men and overall both, both sexes. So there was a, a survey, I think it was in Pew basically asking people, you know, do you think dating has gotten better or worse relative Mm -hmm. to 10 years ago, basically relative to the right, you know, since the right of dating apps, and both groups said it's gotten worse, but for women, the uh, the dissatisfaction, the decline was more dramatic. And I think this is in part because of the the sort of what the decline in intimacy, you know, not necessarily. I mean, you know, I'm sure I'm sure dating apps uh, are are at least partially responsible, but also the rise of like you know widespread porn and all of these other things that are that are also um, subduing intimacy, yeah, but you know, between between young people. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, back when so the the sort of sex drop was came to the public discourse, I think four years ago at this point, there's a big big spread of the Atlantic by Kate Julian. She's still working on a book about it, I think. And I spent some time with the with the Dana Den, then that's in the General Social Survey. And the and the thing that I observe is that so much of the phenomenon is driven by a decline of basically people in their twenty late twenty is sorry is a decline of people a share of people in their twenties who are married. That if you're in your, uh, if you, sorry, today you get married in your late 20s, early 30s, and that was not the historical norm of the median age for at marriage. And if you look within those groups, the average married person has the, the distribution of uh, sexual frequency within married people is about normal. And the distribution of sexual frequency among people who are unmarried is like bimodal, that like hmm. half the people are having a lot of sex and half the people are having no sex at all. 
Um, so, so I wonder about, I guess the the role a a the role that you see of marriage marriages decline, marriages delay in this like greater dissatisfaction with dating, and b how you see sort of the cultural status of marriage, its shift, its decline, affecting in turn affecting dating. Um, and you know how how does each of those drive the other? Yeah, well, I think that the the decline in marriage, I mean, not just marriage, but like the expectation of marriage, I think. You know, there's this, there seems to be this receding belief in the sort of institution of marriage, the value of marriage, just generally a widespread sort of cynicism or skepticism about it among young people. And I, and I don't know if that's because, like where that comes from, if that's because they sense that, you know, sex isn't being taken seriously, so why take marriage seriously? Or if, you know, the, the fact that marriage isn't being taken seriously is therefore sort of making people more sort of, you know, casual or permissive about sex. But I, I thought of marriage as like, you know, this kind of, I mean, it's sexual communism, essentially, right? Like, you know, you mentioned Welbeck earlier, you know, about, uh, he, he wrote about like the, the dereg deregulating the sexual marketplace and right. how the gains accrue to the top, just like in a capitalistic economy. But marriage was essentially sexual communism where each person is assigned, you know, what is it like to each according to their needs or whatever. And so like, you know, every person gets one spouse, one partner, and it may not be perfect, but like, you know, everyone gets an equal, you know, it, it treated, there's this sort of um, this, uh, this sense of equality there. And since, you know, the mid 20th century with the erosion of marriage and, and the sea regulation, you're seeing, yeah, like lots of people who are completely sexless and this vast uh, sexual inequality. Well, there might, it might actually be useful to draw a distinction between what I'm going to call sexual communism and sexual socialism, where sexual communism is what some cultures have done with arranged marriages, where there is like a, a kind of deliberate, you know, plan for you, almost a centralized plan for who's going to pair off with whom, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not a one single controlling government authority, obviously, but it's like, you know, you're, you're, family or your community kind of has a role in who you pair off with. Whereas then you, I think what you had maybe in the first part of the 20th century was not so much arranged marriages, but it was like, like there was some dating and choice, but it was constrained by all these rules and regulations that had a kind of equalizing effect. So that you might call sort of, I don't know, sexual market socialism, like you allow some choice market forces to work, but it's very heavily constrained. And it seems like, you know, around the sixties is where you start to get the rise of like, like sexual neoliberalism, you know, does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a sort of a softer version. It, it's right. not, it's not as rigid. People still had exercised some choice over who their partners were, you know, although, although back then, you know, like, like today you, you, you can exercise choice right. to some extent, but because the, the rules and the norms have, have, you know, basically vanished, you know, you have to choose, and then the other person has to choose you, but because there's, you know, this, there's widespread belief that everyone has unlimited choices. That's also having these sort of knock on effects, you know, sort of uh, how, what social expectations have been thwarted. I mean, I was just thinking here about how, you know, even, you know, you, you opened this question with, should we eliminate dating apps? I mean, one of the, one of the more pernicious effects about them is that, you know, people are, are reluctant to commit mm -hmm. because many people have this belief that there's always something better right around the corner. So this is sort of like very basic finding from social psychology mm -hmm. of choice paralysis that when you have, when you give, when you present people with many options, uh, they are reluctant to choose any mm -hmm. one of them. And then the ones that they do choose, they're less satisfied with their choice. And, you know, the, the idea here is that likely because they, when you present them with so many options, it's hard to pick just one. And then when you pick one, you have this lurking doubt in the back of your mind that did I really pick the right one because there were so many other choices. And I think this is happening with, with dating apps, you know, back in the day, back in, you know, the earlier mid 20th century, and, you know, basically up until very recently in human history, you had like, you know, a couple of people you might've ever gotten to, to date or, or yeah. have a romantic relationship with. And now the, the numbers seem, seem endless and, you know, people are going on dates all the time. And I think there's this general impression that there, there are unlimited partners out there, especially among, among young people. And I think this is also reducing uh, satisfaction uh, in, in, in dating. So, I mean, something implicit in what you just said there is that there 
is a trade-off, just as there is in, in economics and sort of political theory, there's a trade-off between freedom and equality. So here's maybe a way to frame it. To, to what extent do you think so-called incels have a kind of legitimate claim to a form of distributive justice? And if, if they do have one, how do you effectualize it without sort of unacceptably draconian limitations on people's freedoms? Yeah, it's an interesting question, right? I mean, yeah, people have been drawing this parallel. And I mean, we've been doing it in this conversation between sort of like economic capital and, yeah. and sexual capital. And, you know, for, for whatever reason, well, I mean, not for whatever reason, for I think pretty obvious reasons, it's, it's sort of, you know, taxing, taxing the rich to, to redistribute to the poor. Like people don't really have a, a large problem with that, but that, I mean, there is a form of coercion there, but it doesn't seem nearly as, as severe as, you know, whatever, like forcing people to get married to someone they don't like, or, or, you know, whatever, like, I mean, yeah. So how do we do it? I mean, do they have a legitimate claim? First of all, I think, I mean, arguably, I mean, to the, to the extent that, you know, romance and sex and intimacy I mean, if, if those are important and essential parts of our lives and, you know, I, I, I think it would be hard to argue that they're not, then, you know, even if, even if we don't implement some kind of policy to, to help people, I mean, it's still, I think, worth acknowledging that there's a problem and that people suffer some kind of lack in their lives. And then, yeah, what, what are the next steps to, to mitigate it? I mean, I'm not entirely sure because, you know, what, what, what can you do to to uh, to help them? Sex robots, I guess. You know, like what can you do to actually like guide people or or nudge people or whatever into into um to partnerships with one another while while also sort of letting them exercise their freedom at the same. You know, there's just that seems like a very very thorny question. It is, and you know, I think that there are I think that there are sort of two components here. One is that like this is sort of an awkward question for the the redistributive progressive left. Um, where this is a space of obviously social equality. And there's certain places where they're willing to acknowledge that. If you look at disability rights advocates, they'll say we need to legalize prostitution in order to provide access to the fundamental experience of sex to the disabled, which I would say I am generally against, but that's me. I'm also against, you know, state-issued girlfriends for incels. Um, that's <laughs> controversially. Uh, but, you know, I think, I mean, I think there's this separate, there's a separate point you made. Uh, we talked earlier about sort of, but I've heard you talk in other contexts about monogamy as a sort of uh, sexual egalitarianism, that one of the, hmm. you know, but monogamy as a, as a social innovation responds to the, the inequality of relations under polygamy um, by saying everybody only gets to pair once. And so all of the benefits that accrue from pairing off in some way, shape, or form, you could, you're, you're, you're capped at a maximum level. So I sort of wonder if, you know, if, if, if the, there, are, there are lots of social benefits to monogamy, there are lots of social benefits to that kind of sort of fundamental egalitarian social structure for determining, for, for producing a healthy, robust, free society. You know, are are there if 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 there are technologies that are producing that, that are producing this kind of sexual equality, should we try to have some sort of response to it beyond state issued girlfriends? Would they? I mean, it's interesting because, like, you know, the, I think a lot of these the questions about about you know sexlessness and then the death of intimacy focus a lot on 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 male incels, right? But in in a way, I almost think that like their problem is it, it could like you know, be, be mitigated with what, like, like sex robots or I, I've seen others. I mean, I guess this wouldn't work in the U S but really in continental Europe, oh, well, really good VR, but I, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, vouchers to visit prostitutes in, 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 in some countries in Europe, for example, but like, you know, sex is like it, it, I mean, whatever sex work, you know, some people say sex work is work. Right. And so like that, that could actually be addressed in some way in theory, but like for for the fem cells, you know Wesley Yang's fem cell, who right. uh, whose real desire is intimacy. Like, how do you, like, how would you even address that? Like, how do you, like, you know, a sex robot is easy to build or whatever, prostitution and so on. But like, is there an equivalent for for like emotional connection and intimacy in that way? Like, I don't know if if like that could even be addressed in in theory, let alone practice. Yeah. I, I also don't actually think that a lot of incels would be satisfied in the, I mean, maybe they'd be placated 
in a kind of yeah. brave new world way by this. But like, I don't think that I think even men do want something more than just pure physical. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 it seems like incels are an extreme example. Well, I mean, a incels are are sort of differentiated by focalizing the problem as being like women are bad, as opposed to I am dissatisfied with the with, with the marriage market per se. But it does seem like right. I think there's a broader category of people who are saying like. Uh, I am unhappy because I can't clear the marriage market because the market is optimized for um is 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 optimized for sex rather than Chad market. Yeah. So let me let me actually ask about sort of two different components of this. Um, one is how you think about the incentives of tech companies to like keep people in the market and if that's dangerous. And then also the second one is how you think of sort of a longer term technological innovation, which is what do you think about the effects of birth control on uh, how people meet and, and pair off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, the effects of of birth control that that's like you know, I, I you guys should have. I think her name is Sarah Hill, who's who just wrote a book about this about birth control and and its effects on sort of women's psychology and behavior. But but yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting question too because like it sort of removed the the consequences for for casual sex and and unrestrained promiscuity. So in a way, like, you know, there are all these questions about like, well, what happened in the, in the mid 20th century? What happened in the 1960s to give rise to, you know, whatever happened to, to relationships today? And there's a lot of focus on culture, economic inequality, and all these things. But I, yeah, I don't know if there's been enough attention paid to, to, the, to reproductive technology and the pill. As the longest running magazine in the world, The Spectator eschews identity politics in favor of intelligent conversation and thought. From the war in Ukraine to the ideological war in the classroom, from the rise of inflation to the rise of cancel culture, The Spectator has been dedicated to stimulating reporting and analysis since 1828. The U.S. edition of The Spectator has just newly come ashore and is bringing the high-quality writing and analysis to U.S. audiences for the first time. The Spectator also covers the best in books, travel, food, wine, and much, much more. We have a special offer for listeners of Institutionalized. Sign up today and you'll receive three free months of the print magazine and full digital access. Plus, they're going to send you a free spectator hat. Just go to spectatorworld.com slash special offer and use offer code THINK. I love The Spectator because it is committed to the quality of its reasoning and writing, not to a particular political party. Amazing contributors, including Christopher Buckley, Julie Bindel, Christopher Caldwell, Lionel Schraver, Douglas Murray, Toby Young, Slavo Zizek, Roger Scruton, and Rod Little. The Spectator is less political party, more cocktail party. Whether you lean left or right, you're guaranteed to be entertained from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three free months of The Spectator. Plus get your free Spectator hat when you subscribe today at spectatorworld.com slash special offer. Use offer code THINK at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com slash special offer and offer code THINK. This is the, this is the classic paper by Janet Yellen. No yeah, yeah. Treasury. Uh, I mean, who for, who for our readers' benefit, uh, Jen Yellen and her husband, Joe Jackalov, wrote a paper arguing that the decline of shotgun marriage is directly attributable to the invention of and widespread adoption of birth control. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, their basic argument was that, uh, and this was in Brookings, uh, I think in 1995 or 1996, basically they argued that, uh, that yeah, with, with the sort of shock of reproductive technology, um, it removed the the sort of incentive for men to to marry pregnant, you know, the pregnant girlfriends and you know therefore that's why we have this sort of widespread uh single parenthood and i think there's probably some some truth to that i mean it makes sense to me and, and why for example the sort of social expectations and norms uh, evaporated with the knowledge that you know that women were largely responsible for whether they could get pregnant or not and so the burden on men was 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 largely uh removed what was the first part of the question besides the the birth control the 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 whether um Dating apps have perverse incentives to discourage people oh, from clearing yeah. the market. Yeah. So, so I had this conversation with someone at a at a, at a very well known, like a very prominent uh, a dating app company, and he was telling me that they um, they use I think they called it uh, seeding, which is basically like allowing. I don't know if they produce them or they just allow them. He was kind of vague, but basically uh, bots on on the app, like very attractive, usually women, like very attractive women would have like very brief interactions with male users so like you know they you know the the, the man the user mm -hmm. would 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 match with this very attractive bot an image of a real human woman and then say like 
A or whatever. And then the bot was like basically optimized to like have like a five or six, you know, five or six interactions exchanges with the user and then just basically stop. And this was basically like enticing the men to say like, wow, I got a match with this really pretty girl. Well, maybe I can keep, you know, like maybe, maybe it'll happen again. It's almost like, you know, sort of, sort of a, like a, like a casino, like a, like a slot machine. Every once in a while you'll hit the jackpot. And so they intentionally do this in order to, to entice the male users and to keep them hooked on the dating apps. And generally speaking, dating apps don't want you to find a romantic partner and pair off because then that's like two fewer users that they have. And so they're, they're, they, it's against their interests to actually have like long-term committed monogamous relationships. Uh, it's in their interest to like be hookup apps, right? Because they, they, they make you, they, they satisfy you at least in the short term and then they keep you coming back for more. So yeah, I mean, dating apps have, you know, they have these, these perverse incentives and, and they are acting in their in their own interests. I don't necessarily think it's pernicious that they want these things to happen, but that's right. just, you know, that's their business model. Well, and, and that I think raises another question, which is, you know, in, in any market, right, models will treat preferences as exogenous, but we all know that they're not really, and the market itself kind of affects and constructs the preferences people have through advertising and in other ways. So, so, I mean, one implication of what you're saying, right, is that these apps don't just have an, uh, an incentive, an interest in kind of keeping people on the app and not pairing off. They also kind of have an incentive it to make people think of each other as commodities and to kind of shape, desi- give mm. people desires that will be hard to satisfy, um, right? Like they actually have an interest in shaping our desires and making them more superficial, right? And harder to satisfy. Mm. Yes. Yeah. With, right. And more fleeting. Yeah. Yeah. They they want you right. to, to have like these very very brief brief interactions and and to keep coming back and and yeah. I mean, it's even some some of the 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 apps have have changed our our lexicon. You know, or the way that we speak. I mean, have you you've probably heard like the phrase like Tinderella. You know, guys will talk about you know, oh, I'm meeting a Tinderella tonight, as you know, basically like, oh, I'm having like this casual. You know, it's it's it, it sort of cheapens the the idea of the date. Yeah, I gotta I gotta tell you, this is just just the past five minutes have kind of blackpilled me in a in a big way. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, but but like this is this is the thing. I, I mean, so so. Well, I, get, I mean, actually, you know, Charles, if you have another question about the dynamics of this, feel free. But I was going to say, I mean, okay, so like, this seems like a huge problem that all of our romantic life runs through institutions that have an active vested interest in basically like destroying monogamy and making people perpetually single and miserable. This seems horrible. What the hell do we do about this? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, well, and I, and I, and, and I think we sort of, we've, we've sort of agreed it's hard to make pol- reach policy conclusion about this, but, you know, are there, are there personal solutions, are there social solutions, you know, going beyond level policy or like, or like get out of the bad equilibrium? Oh, or, or, or like, is it so bad that we actually do need like, you know, base Josh Hawley <laughs> to like actually go after Tinder? I mean, I mean, I feel we like, keep I feel like Rob to say that he doesn't want, he won't if it's this Tinder. bad, well, like if it's this bad, you know, you do he's actually have to say we should ban Tinder because he's in the pocket of Big Tinder. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> but like, but like, yeah, yeah, what do you do? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one of the so one one just I mean, what do we do about it? Well, I mean, I just wanted to say that like, so it's it's at it, first it's it's not necessarily clear, you know, are are the dating apps changing us or or not? I think they are to some degree. So so there was a study a couple of years ago basically finding that. Are there differences between people who are on the apps versus not on the apps? And this, these were college students. But what they found is that basically uh, university students who use Tinder versus those who are not on Tinder, they tend to have sort of more unpleasant personalities. Uh, they tend to score higher on various, you know, what, what psychologists call dark triad personality traits, higher on narcissism, psychopathy, Machiavellianism. They tend to score higher on uh, what's called um, se- se- sexually a- sexual, but adversarial sexual beliefs. And these these are um, how much participants agreed with statements like uh, sex is like a game where one person wins and the other loses. So people on on dating apps tend to endorse that statement more than people who are not on the dating That's apps. That's horrifying. Um, and so 
And and so I mean, what's interesting about that is that like, okay, so so is it that the apps are making people worse, or is it just that they tend to attract people who are who are not so pleasant to begin with? But like I said, like gradually, I think people more and more people are using the apps, and if you have a couple of the, the experiences on them, right? I, they crowd everything out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They crowd everything out, and and I think if you for a lot of people, I'm noticing this. I mean, it happens with guys. I, I think it happens maybe slightly more for women that if you have a couple of negative interactions, you know, unpleasant experiences, and probably because the unpleasant experience for women are very different than the ones that men have, that, you know, they, they have, they, they, they sort of, uh, it cultivates the cynical attitude towards the opposite sex, uh, towards, towards the apps and towards sort of dating in general. But what do we, what do we do about it? It's, uh, I, I, I'm not sure, like, can, can there any, anything be done? Is it, there's so many debates right now about sort of social media and the apps and, you know, how much how much it, it's it's hurting people and it's affecting young people in detrimental ways. Let me um, let me let me ask the question in a positive rather than normative way. How do you see these trends unfolding? It's thirty years. It's it's twenty years from now. My two my one and a half year old is like just graduating college. Mm-hmm. He's like out dating. How, how hellish is his life going to be? Project. Yeah. Well, sometimes I wonder if. You know, so so there are like the like my my view is that so there are two scenarios I can see playing out or two sort of perspectives here. One is that, you know, it really is going to be this kind of hellscape where like, you know, half of men or more are just sort of resigned to whatever, like Internet porn or or by then, I guess, in 20 years, VR or something. And, you know, some large swaths of women are just, you know, whatever, like like retreating from the market as well, the dating market. And on the other hand, though, like, I mean, men and women have been pairing off and having sex and mating and forming families for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years since like Homo sapiens first arose in the Pleistocene. And so and and through like much more dire circumstances than whatever sort of decadent, you know, modernity that we're under, you know, this is just like, I mean, these are these are problems and they shouldn't be, you know, downplayed, but you know, humans have been through far worse and still managed to have babies. So I feel like we're going to figure it out too, though. I, I'm not, exa- I'm not exactly sure how. I think, I think we want to, we want to sort of move on to closing comments in a minute. I do want to sort of touch on one strand that we didn't hit in this conversation, which is you just alluded to the adverse effects of pornography. Um, how do you think about porn's role in all of this? Um, and how should we think about uh, how porn shapes modern dating? Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there there's some interesting, interesting essays like, you know, written online by various women who are talking about, you know, how sex has become more sort of brutal and violent and there's more choking and all these things. And what I'm finding interesting is that a lot of guys don't like it, but they're like both. It seems like both both sexes assume that the other wants something more sort of mm-hmm. brutal and degrading than is actually the case, because I, I talk to guys, too, who they think that women want something, but I, I wonder if some of these women think that that's what the men wants. And so they just sort of go along with it. And I think por- porn is having a, having a, a large influence here. And what I find interesting is that like, you know, the, the way that porn, like brutal porn is actually more, more popular among women than among men. And, and I'm wondering like what, what, what could explain that? And and if that's also sort of among women's population or among women who consume porn, among women who consume porn, and so so of that course, sounds like it's a legend overall, story, yeah. right? Like like yeah, you know, yeah. many more men consume porn, so the women who consume porn just personally like want, going to want to consume. Yeah, they're 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 they may be an unusual subset of women, but a larger number of women are consuming porn relative to to decades right. past. I mean, it, it is like growing. And I, I don't know that the actual numbers on this. I mean, virtually every young male has, you know, has some some experience with with porn. But for women, yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure the numbers. But 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 yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of like every young person's first encounter with sex now is online. And that's like the first thing they see. Right. And so that is, I mean, almost certainly warping our expectations for what sex should look like. Well, and also, I mean, you know, this could, again, this could be a selection effect, but I have heard that, you know, rape fantasies are a thing that some women have. And so that could explain part of the pattern, but right, you know, you can find something 
titillating as a fantasy, but not want to do it in real life. And, but the, but, you know, to talk about incentives, right? Because porn companies are trying to just play to your fantasy in front of a computer, you know, they don't have any incentive to model real life. They have an incentive to kind of play to fantasies you have in the moment, whether or not you would actually want to act them out with a partner. And I imagine that that incentive structure means that, it, you know, kind of as long as this is a widespread thing, there's going to be a force that that is always warping men's and women's expectations. I mean, do, yeah. do you, I mean, here's, here's actually, I know we need to wrap up in a minute, but so there's sort of two strains of criticism, well, three strains of criticism of porn. One is it's just the production of it is really violent and and bad and exploitative, which I think plenty of people can agree on. The other is that, you know, when men watch it, it makes them violent, which is, I think, less empirically clear. And then there's kind of this third criticism that, no, it doesn't actually really make men violent, even if it encourages some of the weird rough stuff in bed, but like it doesn't make them go out and rape people. What it does is it kind of, almost saps their virility because they're, you know, jerking off to a computer instead of going out and like just having sex with normal people. You know, which of those criticisms do you think has the most merit or empirical support? Because I don't really know the literature on this very well. It's hard to say because like the the research that I'm familiar with, I mean, it's it's largely correlational. I mean, I don't know of any studies that have actually like tracked men who, you know, did watch porn or didn't watch porn and then sort of saw how they you know, carried on their sexual interaction. It's huge susceptibility bias problem. Yeah, well, well, broadly speaking, it, it looks like the the last suggestion you mentioned might be the closest, which is that simply because the 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 number of consumers of porn are on the rise, while at the same time relationships are falling, uh, uh, sexual assaults have been on the decline for a long time, rapes have been declining. But on the other hand, like there, there could be like a, a subsection of men who do watch porn and, the, and it does sort of uh, lead them to become more violent. But but on, in the aggregate, on the average, yeah. it does seem like porn is uh, it's it sort of, uh, you know, sort of uh, sap, saps men and 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 temporarily sedates them such that they have no interest in in actually going out and, and meeting a real a real person. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very cheery note to end on. Um, uh, I guess yeah. I, 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 I think. Well, I, I think well, you wanted to ask about, um, yeah. Actually, yeah. Wait. Well, how about to end? Let's just share. Rob, give us something hopeful. Yeah. Anything. Anything. Something <laughs> anything. Okay. Well, well, there are a couple of things. So, so you know, you had mentioned uh, before we got started. Uh, you know, tips to for for guys at least to improve their their profiles. Although some of this would probably work for women as well. So there was research, for example, indicating that if you're a man and you're on the dating apps and you have a dog pick, you know, I think this is this is kind of common knowledge, but, you know, there may be some guys out there who aren't aware of this. Having dogs uh, increases your odds of obtaining a match by quite a large, I think almost twice as many matches if you have a dog pick. Don't don't put a cat in your profile. You get oh, wow. uh, 11% fewer matches if you have a cat picture. If you're birds? a heterosexual male. I don't know anything about bird. I don't know if those are common I enough. Have, I have a bird. In, in in mind so okay you know, i don't know how that works yeah yeah well I, I mean if it looks exotic and interesting i could imagine i could see that going either way actually what okay so but well yeah good you know get a dog maybe maybe leave the, the cat picture off their profile there was a study from 2009 so this was before before the dating apps but basically they found they, they had a guy basically go up to women carrying a a, a guitar case and ask for their phone number, you know, like have a short interaction and then ask for their phone number. And compared to when he didn't have the guitar case, he got uh, like far, far more phone numbers, I think around three times more. And so, you know, how, how would this work in a dating app? I could imagine that if you know, learn how to play an instrument, don't just put a guitar case photo in your, you know, but actually learn how to play an instrument and, and then like showcase yourself doing it. I could imagine that could have a, a positive effect education as well so men with master's degrees get about twice as many matches as men kidding? with bachelor's degrees are you kidding me no no, no, no. Back it's a fucking fake debate but it's a fucking fake degree and it's like the ultimate <laughs> sign that you're midway oh are you kidding okay this is yeah. this is even worse jesus christ <laughs> well get get the fake degree then get the fake degree maybe i should just um, say i have a master's because i can probably fake having a master's because i'm like high iq enough but there you go well well don't don't put that in your bio. Don't put that. Yeah, no. I don't have a master's, but I have a high IQ. So don't worry. <laughs> um, 
It, it works for women too. So women with master's degrees relative to women with bachelor's degrees, they get something like 10% more matches. So education actually does have a slight positive effect for women as well. But for men, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, pretty, pretty pronounced. So there's like a few things, you know, learn how to play an instrument, get more education, get a dog. And probably, yeah, I mean, just the general, you know, take good pictures and, and make sure that you're, you know, in somewhat decent physical condition. But okay. those are a few things that if you're a young guy, you can, you can, uh, you can improve your, improve your odds. Should do like an online master's program. This is yeah. okay. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna express my opinions while Aaron stews. Uh, <laughs> Aaron's Aaron's takeaway is gonna be like, yeah, we've just tried public universities. Now, yeah. So I think I think just to sort of think about this conversation out loud a little bit. I mean, I think it seems plausible to me that there are all sorts of adverse pressures on clearing the marriage market. That it's much harder to leave the marriage market today than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago, mm. and that in some senses the you know the some of that is that we've optimized search, as I said at the beginning. Some of that is that we've optimized for sex rather than, and for short-term connection rather than long-term connection. Although you can optimize that too, and the hit rates make hit or miss. But I think, I think, you know, I, I don't know. I walk out of the conversation pretty persuaded that dating apps are not great and that, that making the market a little less efficient and making it a little bit harder for people to discriminate will on average result in, uh, in greater overall happiness. Like, you know, fun fundamentally the thing about getting married is like the, the the best person you get married to is often the person that you end up getting married to which is not saying you should get married to somebody that you're miserable with but that like infinite choice infinite variety trying to optimize for the best is not uh, uh it, not not a great way to leave the market so so you know i think i think it's important you know that 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 that's practical advice, but sort of big picture thing is like it seems like there are in fact lots of structural determinants that are discouraging people from actually pairing off, actually having kids, actually getting married in yeah. a stable institution. Um, and we should be willing to like discourage the use of those things, probably for yeah. policy. I actually, you know, th that's an interesting point there. It, you had just reminded me of a study that I'd read uh, a couple of years ago showing uh, basically uh, assortative mating and what what traits uh, married couples tend to be similar on. And I think, you know, uh, the intuition here, I think would be that that married couples probably uh, share personality traits. So if you tend to be agreeable or open and so on, but actually the correlation for personality tends to be extremely low. Uh, e even for height and weight, the correlations are not as high as you would expect, mm. but the largest correlations are, are, are for education and political orientation, which to me makes sense. I mean, probably, you know, people want someone who they can have, uh, you know, a conversation with that's roughly on the same intellectual level as themselves and and who share their their same personal values. But all of those other things, right, about like, you know, do our personalities mesh and those kinds of things, I think people find a way to make it work. They don't necessarily have to be super similar on those dimensions because, you know, once you have those basics of like, can I have a conversation with this person and do we have the same values? From that point, I think people figure it out. Yeah. So I guess my take, besides just that I've been really black pilled in the past half hour. Um, this, this did you sign up for a master's program? Uh, God. Yeah, Currently filling out your master's application? No, these people, oh God, we're, we're so damned. No, but, but you know, I, I do take some heart in what you said about how, you know, humanity has been reproducing itself for millennia it's yeah. it's really we're only like a decade or so into this there's still time to iron it out i suspect to kind of stick with the market metaphor that i don't think the market is going away but i think maybe we will come up with innovations sort of informal social innovations that make our sexual market look less like you know a, a, a neoliberal dystopia and more like kind of Scandinavian social democracy where there are market, there is choice, but there's a lot more informal mechanisms of redistribution. I, I have to say, I, I started the conversation thinking, yeah, like probably not worth Josh Hawley picking a fight with Tinder and Hinge. Now I'm like, maybe he should, you know, these things really do seem pretty bad. And, and also, also, I mean, I don't know if, how this would work, but what you described where they have these like bots to kind of hook men in. I mean, is there a way you could, you could sue them for like predatory business practices? I don't know, but like, but like, that's a question somebody else. Yeah. But it just, I mean, I, I think like 
that sort of thing should be publicized and these companies should be made to like brutally pay for it. And maybe if they didn't do it, it wouldn't be quite so bad. But, you know, we'll probably, we'll probably be fine after a, you know, 50 year period of utter abject dystopia that almost destroys civilization, but hopefully it doesn't. <laughs> I, don't think, <laughs> on, I don't think on, on, that. on that, on that cheery note, I want to move to sort of our, our recommendations or do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week? Yeah, I actually do. So so the the idea of it kind of being hard to opt out of a market once once it becomes hegemonic is a, a really good historical exploration of that is Carl Polanyi's great transformation about the rise of market society in uh, 18th century England. It's a bit dense, but it has a lot of interesting observations that you can, I think, very easily repurpose to the kind of sexual marketplace context. But also, if you want to maybe understand why dogmatic, Reaganite, neoliberal, free market mantras are bad and stupid and ignore social context and the role of the government in creating a capitalist economy, you should read that book because it pretty effectively demolishes all of those shibboleths. Yeah, my uh, my recommendation this week is Mark Regnaris, the sociologist's book, Cheap Sex, which I think uh, five, six, seven years old, something like that. Uh, Regnaris is actually from whom I got the phrase, mating markets, dating markets, markets and sex. Uh, and he makes many of the arguments that we've made today about the role that technological change has played in the shaping of dating markets, um, both from a big picture empirical perspective, he also has a bunch of really interesting, he does a big focus group, it's 100 people. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a book that's well worth reading. Regnaris is a controversial figure for other reasons, but I think, I think the book itself is very good. Um, Rob, can we invite you to offer our audience recommendation, both of your own work and or somebody else's? Yeah, well, so so one book that comes to mind is Why Women Have Sex by Cindy Meston. So she's a psychologist. Uh, she co-authored that book with with David Buss, but she's the first author. And yeah, I mean, it delves into sort of the evolutionary psychology behind not not just why women are attracted to things they're attracted to, but but why men are attracted to the things they're attracted to as well. And uh, I think, yeah, both both men and women would would get a lot of value out of that. I wrote an essay a couple of years ago uh, with a with a, a colleague of mine called All the Single Ladies, which delves into a lot of the the data uh, underlying much of what I, I spoke to you guys today about I mean, sort of dating apps and lopsided uh, sort of incentives and and uh, also delves into uh, gender ratios, which we didn't get to speak much about. But gender, gender ratios do seem to play a, a large role, too, in, uh, in the mating market. Well, I think that's about all the time that we have. Uh, thank you so much to Rob for joining us today. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Uh, if you are loyal listeners, have questions, comments, concerns, feedbacks, master's application forms, uh, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium, M.A. Um, <laughs> I hate you. Until next time, I'm Charles Fent Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. You have to join us again.